0: Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Andy looked at the topic of worship. Andy is one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and is also currently working on a PhD in theology. Let's take a listen to the session. Okay, so session two, we're going to have a little think about the doctrine of uh, worship what does it mean to worship God? This is a, a word that we hear all the time in church. It's particularly associated of course with, um, with the, the times that we sing together congregationally and in that sense it's probably something that the vast majority of us could say that we have really missed in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Whether we've been singing into a, a screen Um, with nobody or just one or two people that we live with around us or whether we've been um, trying to, uh, whether we've been actually attending in-person services recently and have been unable to sing um, in those services. This aspect of sun worship is something many of us, myself included, have really missed. But we know that there's more to worship than this. And we're going to have a little think for the first uh, two thirds of this session about what that more is. What does it mean to worship God at its very root? And um, as our, our purpose, what does it mean to worship God? Um, and then uh, we're going to finish by thinking about some worship and where that fits in to the big picture. But to begin with, I wanted to quote from the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism in 1648, which says this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Man's chief highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. This I think is is what it means to worship God, to glorify him, that is to ascribe to him the glory that he is worth but also to enjoy him, to delight in him. There's an element of worship which involves our own pleasure and rejoicing. Well, the English word that we translate as worship uh, is one word, which we'll see in just a second, covers loads and loads of ancient words in the Hebrew and Greek. But, but it comes from the old English word kind of that, that means ascribing worth to something. So worship is born of worthship. Okay. Showing honor to an object which has been deemed as having worthiness. But a huge range of Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament words can be translated as worship or praise. I'm not going to run through all of these that you'll see in your handouts and kind of one by one because it's it's a bit dull. But but actually you can see this huge range of uh, physical and emotional actions which are encompassed in what we might call worship or praise. Everything from kneeling down, prostrating oneself on the floor, to jumping up and down in celebration, to shouting at the top of our voices, to singing at the top of our lungs. Actually, there are words in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures that, are, uh, that, that mean all of those different things, and we could translate all of them as worship or praise, and that is what you'll normally find them translated as in your Bible. Our word worship barely seems to do justice to all of those wonderful things that that word could possibly mean in the Bible. Just to point out one of those words, the word Tehillah, which means to sing halals, particularly with music, just to draw the link there between the Psalms, which are called the Tehillim. Uh, I may have said Tenelim earlier, that would have been a mistype. They're called the Tehillim, so the, the singing of songs, particularly to God, songs of praise every circumstance as we call the Psalms but there's just a link for you there let's move on to kind of page uh, two of the handout and have a little think about the history of worship what it means to worship God from the Old Testament to the new we're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to start at the very beginning with this statement that mankind that you and I were created for worship we were created to make much of God to ascribe God's worth to him to sing his praises now i wonder uh, whether it that that kind of triggers something in you that, that leads you to think ah, i'm just a little bit uncomfortable with that idea that god would create us to worship him that seems if you liken that to any human being that seems quite egotistical doesn't it maybe it conjures up images of communist or fascist dictators erecting statues of themselves all over uh, their land and demanding that people bow down to them you know this happens in the bible as well with king nebuchadnezzar and the giant statue that he asks daniel and his friends to bow down to but unlike these dictators these human dictators who demand for no deservable reason that people bow down to them and worship them actually god two things number one god is worthy of worship That's what makes it completely justifiable for him to create creatures that would worship him. But the second thing is that actually God in his grace has made himself the object of our greatest satisfaction and enjoyment. Actually, so worshipping him is actually in our very best interest as well. God hasn't made it so that worshipping him is merely a chore, that we're robots reciting his worship without any pleasure or enjoyment actually God has made himself the object of our greatest satisfaction and worship in Genesis 1 verse 26 27 God makes mankind in his image and the word he uses the word the bible uses for image there in the Hebrew is tselem which also means statue or uh, yeah or in that sense it's an image the kind of image you might find in a temple God creates human beings as representatives of himself, whose purpose is to mirror him, to glorify him, to point to who he is. Andrew Wilson puts it this way in his book, God's Stories. God, as we frequently read in scripture, wanted his glory to fill the whole earth. So he made human beings in his image, creatures who resembled, reasoned, related, reproduced and ruled like him and told them to fill the earth. All of those things we're created to do is to glorify God by being, in some sense, like him, because he's made us that way. Isaiah 43 speaks twice of God uh, creating people for his glory. Wayne Gruden puts it this way. The fact that God created us for his own glory determines the correct answer to the question, what is our purpose in life? Our purpose must be to fulfill the reason that God created us to glorify or worship or praise him. Well, I, uh, regarding kind of that idea, that there's a, a real need for purpose in our world, isn't there? When people feel that they don't know their purpose or they are without purpose, it can lead to really kind of uh, low self-esteem and, and low goals for life. Not really knowing what we're here for can be really damaging and difficult. And yet here we see that God has created us to worship and glorify him. Not only is that our purpose, but in living up to our purpose, we get to be at our most satisfied in glorifying God. I think there's a general agreement that if you know your purpose, you are in a better place. You are happier. You are more satisfied with your life. This is our purpose. Grudem goes on. When we realise that God created us to glorify him and when we start to act in ways that fulfil that purpose, then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we have never before known. Well, that story of God creating human beings for his glory encourages us to live up to that purpose as his worshippers, But as we go through the Old Testament, we see that at every single point, God returns to this idea of his people being his worshippers. In Exodus chapter 8, when God is about to uh, bring about the plan that led to the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And then when the Israelites leave Egypt and find themselves in the desert and Moses briefly leaves them to go well, I don't know how briefly it was, to go up a mountain to meet with God. What is it that upsets God so much that leads him to referring to the Israelites as a stiff necked people that leads Moses to, uh, to angrily rebuke them? It's the fact that they turn to worship something else, the golden calf it says God God says to Moses they've bowed down to this calf and sacrificed to it and have said these are your gods Israel who brought you out of Egypt. God describes himself on several occasions as a jealous God who wants to be worshipped himself because he alone deserves it. Once the people of Israel have been liberated we know that God gives them a law At the end of Exodus and in Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, God lays down this law. But why? Why would God lay down this law for his people? Well, for many people, I think there's a question mark over why God would would request such high standards from his people in the community of Israel. When you read through the 600 and something laws that God lays down, you think, my goodness, that would be difficult to keep. But the reason is that God is the ultimate standard. He is the ultimate holiness for us to even have a chance to worship him properly as sinful human beings. We have to become holy like him, right? That's the only way we can effectively worship him. This passage uh, in uh, Leviticus 11 summarizes how God, no, um, that's about the previous passage, actually, about the previous passage that summarizes how God uh, gets angry at the, uh, the worship of other gods. in Leviticus 11, uh, God is saying, uh, God says to them, and he says this on several occasions, be holy because I am holy. I am holy. You want to worship me? You need to become uh, my holy people. We see more of what that means. And if you read the many, many laws in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and and of course, Exodus as well, you see the standard God holds, holds his people to. And then finally, God leads his people, as he had promised to do from the time of Abraham in Genesis 12, leads the people into the promised land. And the passage from Deuteronomy that you'll see on your handout, Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 4, I'm not going to read it all out. But what it essentially shows you is how God sends the, his people into his promised land, delivers them into the promised land, and tells them that the first thing they need to do is remove every trace of the worship of other gods. Why? Because God is the jealous God. He wants to be the only object of their worship because he's the only one worthy of it. And he knows that this is how they will live up to their purpose, by worshipping him. Which brings us to uh, a couple of um, kind of the, the fundamental pillars, if you like, of the Old Testament system of worship. Now, you may well have gone over this in earlier School of Theology sessions as you look at uh, the law or or you look at um, what it means to um, kind of what what the temple meant and that that kind of thing. But actually here in the context of worship, we see the systems God put in place so that he would be worshipped in the community of Israel. There were a bunch of things that you needed to do. There were a bunch of people ordained to do it and a certain place that it needed to be done. And those things, the things you needed to do, In the community of Israel to worship God were sacrifices primarily okay there were sacrifices and offerings which needed to be made in worship to God those sacrifices were offered in gratitude but also quite famously in repentance or in contrition uh, offering a sacrifice to atone for or cover over the sins of the people of Israel Right at the centre of the book of Leviticus is instructions for celebrating the day of atonement, where the priest would take two goats and one of the goats would be killed to atone for the sins of Israel. And the other goat would be released into the wilderness, symbolising the removal of sin from the community. This was how God was saying, you are to worship me. Yes, you will sin, but you will cover it over in these sacrificial ways. And then you have the people who were ordained to do it. The people who were in charge of worship, if you like. If you read Leviticus 8-10, to you'll, you'll find the description of the priesthood. Priests in ancient Israel were held to the highest moral standard. They were the facilitators of worship. So it was important that they held to the moral standard they were instructing others to keep to. In the time of the temple, you have the chief priest, who was the only one who was able to enter the temple's holiest point, the centre where God dwelt, the holy of holies on behalf of the people. And then finally, you have the place where this worship needed to be done. In the, uh, from the community of Israel that dwelled in the desert all the way to the, uh, the, the, the magnificent temple, This was the place where God would dwell among his people, the place where God's presence specifically dwelt. Exodus 40, 34 says the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is where Israel is in the desert and the cloud symbolizes the glory or the presence of God. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. The tabernacle later is replaced by the centre of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. What's really interesting about this is that we often look back on the Old Testament form of worship as impossible, thinking God wants an unattainable standard from his people. And this is true to a large extent. But actually, if we look more closely, this is true to a large extent because we see how often the people of Israel get it wrong. But if we look more closely here, we see that actually God's grace is in action. God wants his people to live up to their purpose as worshiping him. God wants a relationship with his chosen people. If we look at Numbers chapter one, verse one, we see that Moses is in the middle of a conversation with God in the tent of meeting, the center where God's presence dwelt, which meant that this system, which brought the people up to a certain standard of holiness and the priests up to an even higher standard of holiness And the chief priest up to the highest standard of of holiness so that he could enter the presence of God actually worked. God had created a system where the people could worship him, where Moses, the the high priest, could, acting as the high priest here, could enter the presence of God. Something which in earlier chapters of the Bible had led to people dying, trying to enter the presence of God. The fact that Moses speaks with God in this tent of meeting showed that the system did work. But these verses also show us that the system that we see in the Old Testament, the form of worship we see in the Old Testament, the pillars of this system, seem quite far removed from what we understand to be worship today. And yet if we look for this language in the New Testament, we actually find it everywhere. The New Testament authors go to great lengths to show us that actually the systems of worshipping God in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the priesthood and the tabernacle, are not gone Actually, they've just changed uh, in their meaning. Actually, God has uh, completely changed what it means to worship Him through sacrifice, with a priesthood, and with His presence. I wanted to break into breakout rooms now for just eight minutes to have a think about the Bible verses that I've written down on the handout. And if you don't have them, I'll post them in the uh, group. And um, but these are uh, Bible verses from the New Testament which speak about sacrifice and priests and even the tabernacle. But you may have other Bible verses that spring to mind as well. And the question we want to ask is, uh, how do these concepts actually apply to worship in the New Testament as well? Where does sacrifice come in? Where do priests or the priesthood come in? What about God's presence in the tabernacle or the temple? Where does that come in in the New Testament? How do the following verses influence our view of what it means to worship God in the New Testament age? Romans 3.25, Hebrews 4.14, 1 Peter 2.9 and John 1.14. I'll post them in the chat. So I think the, uh, the thing that struck me about these verses in the New Testament is actually how much effort the New Testament authors go to to uh, show us that, God's, that, that the pillars, the fundamental um, aspects of what it means to worship him Um, have a continuity into the New Testament actually these are things that God still cares about and still values these are still kind of um, the fundamentals of worshipping him we can easily look at the Old Testament system and think that either none of it applies to us or that um, our system of worship has completely shifted and has nothing in common with this one but actually built into the Christian life are all three of these principles Christian worship still involves sacrifice, doesn't it? Both on our on behalf of us, and also um, and also in response, God calls us to sacrifice for Him. Jesus, of course, has been that sacrificial lamb that is mentioned in the Day of Atonement, or a sacrificial goat in the Day of Atonement. But you know, and um, uh, who has uh, both paid for our sin by dying, and also symbolised the removal of our sin. As well. uh, Jesus has become the fulfillment of that day of atonement, that ultimate sacrifice. He's atoned for our sin once and it is done. And now God calls for us to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice to Him. Romans 12. Jesus talked about counting the cost of following Him, didn't he, before we uh, go into it and being ready to pick up our cross. There's sacrifice involved in the Christian life. Christian worship also still involves priests but in the eyes of God every one of us is in the royal priesthood actually there's something just a comment on that verse in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 where he says you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession in the old testament you couldn't really be a royal and a priest because the royals and the priests came from different tribes of Israel the kings came from the tribe of Judah the the priests came from the tribe of Levi And yet here, uh, Peter says, you are a royal priesthood through being a co-heir with Christ, God's child. You are a royal and you are a priest ordained by God to worship him. And of course, at our head is Jesus, the great high priest who tore the temple curtain in two as he died, granting access to the Holy of Holies, to all of God's people. We'll hear slightly more in just a second about this limitless presence of God, which is now open to all of God's holy priesthood, royal priesthood. And Christian worship still involves the presence of God. Actually, uh, this is what's symbolised by the the tabernacle or the temple, is this is where God's presence was, but God's presence is still central to our worship. Uh, Jesus coming to earth and walking among among man, tabernacling among us as John 1, uh, the language John 1 uses, Jesus has ushered in God's presence as an accessible ever-present phenomenon. And as we worship We become more aware of his presence by his spirit who lives in us. Which brings us to worship in the New Testament. Think about what it means to worship God in view of what Jesus has done. Actually, um, the the, uh, fundamental pillars of what it means to worship God are, are still there. But with the change of meaning in these fundamentals comes a whole series of other changes which in what it means to worship God which actually all kind of involve uh, accessibility and inclusivity in the biblical sense. God welcoming more people into his worshipping community. When it comes to the distinctives of New Testament worship, the things that set uh, New Testament worship apart, as I look at my screen I realise distinctives might not be a word uh, so I apologise but the things that make New Testament worship and um, yeah, distinct from the Old Testament. One of them is the erasure of divisions between worshippers. Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16 speaks about uh, Jesus' death having er- uh, erased or broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, who can now worship God together, referring probably to the wall that surrounded the temple. There was one wall which kept the Gentiles out. There was another wall which kept the Jewish women out. And there was another, w- an- another uh, wall which kept non-priests out. Actually, these were layers which, which led to division. Those divisions are gone through Jesus. It's also uh, another distinction of New Testament worship is the accessible presence of God. Matthew 27, 51 speaks about the temple curtain which divided the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, the holiest place where only the chief priest could enter and only once a year and they'd attach bells to him just in case he died and they heard the bells stop ringing and they pull him out. Actually that was no longer the case after the temple curtain tore into symbolizing a reality which is that God's presence became accessible to anyone who worships him. There's an invitation as well in the New Testament to uh, participate in something heavenly. It would be wrong to uh, speak about worship without mentioning the book of Revelation, much of which pictures the worshipping community in heaven surrounding the throne of God with various strange and uh, magnificent creatures and 24 elders symbolising humankind, bowing down before God, declaring you are holy, you are worthy. There's an invitation as we come to worship, singing God's praises, to participate in something which is going on right now in heaven and which will go on for eternity because God is worthy of worship. This is how it will always be. Heaven will be full of his worshippers worshipping him. There's an emphasis, of course, on the presence of the Holy Spirit rather than the presence of a certain building or person. Now, I want to qualify that person. Of course, the person of Jesus Christ is essential to worship but any earthly person that there's no necessity for a specific person to be present anymore, nor is there a necessity to be in a certain building to worship. John 4.23, Jesus says, yet time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Now, I don't know how much you know that passage, but Jesus is responding to the, the question of a, of a Samaritan woman who's, who's Saying to Jesus, I want to worship, but I've been told that I'm not allowed to go to Jerusalem because I'm a Samaritan, so I can't go worship there. But also, it's not really valid for me to worship in Samaria. What's your take? And Jesus says, It's going to be about worshiping the Father in the Spirit and in truth. This is the kind of worship the Father is seeking, not worship in a specific building or in a specific nation, even. In fact, the church all over the globe is growing at its most slow. It's growing most slowly in Europe. It's growing exponentially more quickly in other parts of the world. There's no geographical restriction to where God can be worshipped. In fact, God being worshipped isn't even restricted by authorities saying that God cannot be worshipped. Do you know that being a Christian in the nation of Iran is extremely dangerous, and yet it's got the fastest growing church in the world actually uh, what matters is being full of the spirit and worshipping God in spirit and in truth and Jesus says a time is coming a time is coming when God's kingdom is fully established and when the worshippers will fill it worshipping God in spirit and in truth but that time also has now come and now what it means to worship God is to worship him in spirit and in truth God uh, uh, Speaks about, well, the Bible speaks about God's new temple using temple and building language to speak about how God is building His church. So, in a sense, Jesus is the new temple, He's the one who tabernacled among us. In another sense, using the cornerstone of Jesus, God is building His temple upon that cornerstone, upon that bedrock, that solid ground that is Jesus Christ, and He's building us into a heavenly house uh, indwelt by His Spirit. And Paul says in Romans 12, using a word that is translated as a temple service or worship, he tells the, the Roman believers what it actually means to worship God and says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that should say mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, which, uh, yeah, which, which means temple service. This is what it truly means to serve God now. Uh, I've heard on several occasions that when you see a therefore in the Bible you should ask what it's there for. and uh, at the beginning of Romans 12 that word therefore it's Paul has been speaking about God's incredible grace says, therefore in view of God's grace offer yourself to God as a sacrifice well I wonder if uh, you want to have a little think about the next question we won't um, we won't split Uh, into breakout rooms right now because I think I think we're probably due at a break so we'll have a break now and I want you to just have a think if you want to um, or feel free also just to go top up on coffee that's fine too about this question but we won't necessarily uh, discuss this at length in breakout rooms which church activities would you describe as worship is it restricted just to uh, the times we sing together or is there more to it than that have a little think about that but right now is not a discussion break it's just a break and, and then we'll, we'll resume with worship in the church afterwards. Um, we're going to move on to have a little think about what worship means in the church or what worship means today. We've looked at worship in the Old Testament, worship in the New Testament. What about how, when we apply those things to our, our own circumstances? Um, and uh, one of the questions we want to think about is the one that I previously posed to you, but uh, which I'm not going to ask for feedback on, which is which church activities would you describe as worship Well, obviously, we associate worship massively with when we sing together, and that's completely okay, I think, actually, that's a really important part of what worship is. But I wonder if when we ask that question, what is worship and what is worship in the church, maybe we need to have a few criteria. Uh, Does the activity we're going to do tick boxes X, Y, and Z, in which case we could consider it worship? And I think a helpful framework for thinking about that is what um, uh, Wayne Gruden puts forward in his in his book systematic theology i should uh, i should say when i mention wayne grudem i'm speaking about his systematic theology book which is great and um, but he talks about uh, delight and drawing near and i've paraphrased some of what he said here to help us think about what we would constitute as worship in the church grudem calls these four things uh, part of the um results of genuine worship part of the results of genuine worship. And uh, and he talks about how when we worship, we delight in God and he delights in us. We draw near to God and God draws near to us. So are the things that we would consider worshipful activities, are they seeking to bring those things about? To cause us to delight and draw near to God and for him in response to do those things to us? Well, uh, I'll begin with number one. When we worship, we delight in God. I used to – I'm – for – many years so I'm, I'm 26 years old and since I was about 15 I, I was I've been leading sung worship in churches from my home church back in East Sussex all the way up to Manchester here and everything in between and and there was a period in my life where I became quite uncomfortable that um, some of the the sung worship we did or that I heard at conferences and that kind of thing sometimes it felt a bit like the music was what was making us joyful rather than the lyrics or rather than Or of who God was and and I uh, briefly sort of went off the idea of of this kind of sung worship a little bit thinking about this doesn't feel authentic and yet actually uh, God really softened my heart on this over the years I think and uh, it showed me that to rejoice in him actually is a really integral part of what worship is to to actually uh, try to bring about a sense of feeling joyful and uh, yeah Overjoyed at who God is, is central to what worship is about. Psalm 1611 puts this beautifully, you make known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. John Piper, famously an advocate for enjoying who God is, uh, in his book Desiring God, wrote joy is not a mere option alongside worship, it is an essential component of worship. Anything that causes us to rejoice in who God is, in his wonderful, faithful character, can be considered worship every day we see this uh, in Acts chapter 2 as well as we look at the early church and uh, what their early meetings look like and if I'm really honest they just sound like great fun it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people throughout the story of Acts particularly Acts 1 to 12 where you see the um the story of the early church in Jerusalem you see uh, the all of these really quite dramatic encounters people being thrown in prison and then released from prison and it's just peppered with this language of rejoicing rejoicing in who God is this kind of rejoicing in worship delighting in God is central to what it means to worship him but the Bible teaches as well that when we delight in God in worship actually God delights in us as well Isaiah 62 says that God rejoices over us like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That incredibly intimate relationship, a bridegroom celebrating uh, the person who is before him. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. But we have to be careful uh, quoting these verses at people, I think, because the Bible is, is clear that God delights in us when we worship him. God delights in us when we follow him and we devote our lives to him. And when I think about this and think about how you prove this from the Bible, yeah, I think about verses like Isaiah 62.5 and Zephaniah 3.17. Do you know what I think of the most? I think of Luke 15, those three stories where A woman finds a coin that she has lost and then a a shepherd finds a sheep that has been lost and then a father has his son who has been lost returned to him. And each of those stories ends with this party, this rejoicing over the sinner who has repented and come back to God. God delights in us when we worship him, when we come to him in worship. The first act of coming to him in worship is turning from our uh, life of sin and turning to him, isn't it? When we worship, we delight in God and God delights in us. Number three, when we worship, we draw near to God. Hebrews 10 puts this well. I'm going to read this slightly long quote. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place or the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a high, great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The beauty of the letter to the Hebrews or the book of Hebrews is that it, it, it's perhaps the, the, uh, the most obvious bridge between the Old Testament system of worship and the New Testament, the amount of references to the old system they're just everywhere, and here the author of uh, Hebrews says that uh, r- reminds us as believers that in a physical sense, through the Old Testament worship system, the people of God could only draw near when they'd been made holy. Right? O- only the uh, the chief priest could draw the very nearest one could get to God. But now, because we have been made righteous by Jesus Christ's holiness, which He has put onto us, so that we can be clothed in His righteousness we can draw near to God. And the author of Hebrews says elsewhere, we can approach the throne with confidence. When we worship, we draw near to God. And finally, when we worship and draw near to God, he draws near to us. James 4 verse 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Grudem says when we worship God, he meets with us and directly ministers to us, strengthening our faith, intensifying our awareness of his presence and granting refreshment to our spirits. When we worship him, it's not that God wasn't there before and then he is, it's that he makes us acutely aware of his presence. He draws near to us in that sense and he ministers to us. The exercise of spiritual gifts may be a great example of this. When somebody is given a prophecy or a spiritual gift from God to exercise on behalf, of course, of the building up of the congregation of the church, building up of the church, that is God drawing near to us, God ministering to us, being with us by his presence, by his spirit. When we worship, we delight in God. God delights in us. We draw near to God and God draws near to us. Well, uh, we, I asked that question before, what, um, what church activities would you describe as worship? And I would go on to suggest that maybe it's those things which cause us to delight in God, in response to which he delights in us. The things that cause us to draw near to him, and God draws near to us. The, uh, I'm reminded of the words of the Church of England um, communion, communion service, part of which says, draw near with faith. Communion clearly is seen as this activity which causes us to delight in God as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus and draw near to him by participating in that as his church. There's a vision there of what worship is and what true worship achieves, which brings us to the the kind of final section on us to just have a think about this morning, which is uh, the, the word that probably most pops to mind when we think of worship, which is song or singing or music. Often the music that we listen to that's church-related would be referred to as worship music. In fact, worship music has gone from being a relatively uh, kind of um, an old-fashioned, an old perhaps uh, you would sing hymns in churches, to being one of the actually largest music markets in the world. It's a multi-million dollar, multi-million pound industry, this worship music industry. Where does this idea of song worship fit into this vision of what it means to fulfill our purpose as worshipping God? Well, song worship is not on every page of the Bible, um, and often people use this as an excuse to uh, talk about how, uh, you know, it's not actually the most important thing, and yet it is really, really important to worship and Paul points that out in Colossians 3 verse 16 when he says let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms hymns and songs from the spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul speaks about song or poetry or music being this phenomenal tool to both minister to one another and praise and worship God One of the biggest questions I hear and I've heard throughout my uh, life as a uh, worship leader, but also now as a a site leader, a church leader, and one of the biggest questions I always hear that comes up again and again is the question of the theological accuracy of worship music and how much that really matters. How much does it matter that the songs we sing are, uh, agree with the theology perhaps of, of the church? How, much, uh, how important is it that these worship songs are, um, are kind of theologically uh, sound and theologically solid how much does that actually matter and I want to just put us in breakout rooms for the last time uh, before I just make a few closing comments on sung worship and to discuss that question just for uh, let's just go with five minutes since I know that we people uh, might not want to stay for much longer than past 12 so we'll just go with five minutes how important is correct theology in the worship music we sing at church and why? Andy was just telling me on the break that um, in his, his church, that he, he grew up in a very conservative church. There was a, a real um, kind of a pushback against calling sung worship worship. Uh, you'd refer to it as something else. Maybe your background is similar. Maybe you struggle with the term worship. Uh, I, d- I do personally prefer the term sung worship for that reason, really. I think we want worship to be a more encompassing thing uh, than um, just it meaning songs uh, would, would allow, um, but I wonder uh, how important you felt that some worship, um, the theology of the worship songs we sing actually is. Um, I would argue that it's really 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 important um, for two reasons, um, and when i say really important i mean that when we choose songs or uh, we um allow songs to be used in our church communities or our small groups and that kind of thing and um, what should we be choosing them on the basis of well i i believe it's we should be choosing them on the basis of whether we believe they are true about who god is whether they are biblically true rather than how popular they are and that kind of thing which is sometimes what we can be tempted i can be tempted To do is just to pick the latest really popular song without really thinking about what it's saying but there are two reasons that I think uh, the theology of worship music is important and the first is that worship is incredibly important as I hope I have uh, put across in this session it's our opportunity and our purpose to praise God for all he is so it matters that what we say about him is right we are doing God a massive disservice if we describe him as Uh, overly weak perhaps or overly human or if our worship music inadvertently describes him as a universalist or anything like that actually we are doing God a disservice this is God we're talking about a lot of worship music can have a tendency as I just uh, touched upon to over anthropomorphize God so to make him into almost to make him too human God appeared to us as human as Jesus Christ of course but if we limit God being just like us like a human friend or a human partner even then actually we are limiting him aren't we Jeremiah 10 12 says God made the earth by his power he founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding in a worship music trend which I've been following for the last however many years which tends to uh, focus heavily on the intimacy we have with God actually that can often be lost God's might and power can often be a little bit lost If we portray him simply as a good friend or like a romantic partner, if we describe him on the basis just of how we feel about him rather than what the Bible says about him, then we're not actually describing God. The second reason that I think it's really important is because of the power and the popularity of music. Uh, Many people make decisions on which church they're going to go to based on the quality of the music, young people particularly. Many people go home singing the songs they heard at church on Sunday, but by contrast, how many of them go home quoting the points of the sermon? Sung worship is perhaps the greatest uh, resource alongside the sermon. I would hope we have for teaching people about God alongside uh, the teaching that we have the sermon. And like it or not, many people from their many people will form their theology as much from the worship music they hear and repeat in their heads and repeat in their headphones as they will from the bible so it's of paramount importance that the worship music we sing is biblical actually and um, i think uh, it's it's really important to keep that in mind as we think about that verse in colossians 3 verse 16 because although the bible doesn't uh, talk about uh, worship one of the functions of of worship being teaching theology Actually, it does say here in Colossians 3, uh, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. So as we worship together, the purpose of which is to glorify God, there is something about serving one another in that as well. But in terms of uh, kind of what uh, we want to think about in perhaps a worship set, let's imagine a worship set under normal circumstances, five or six songs on a Sunday, or maybe in the broad spectrum of the songs that you might use at your church, in your church community. And I know that this will be of uh, a different kind of relevance to people who lead some worship or lead churches, as it will to people who don't. But I hope there'll be something here for everybody. What kind of things are we trying to balance to ensure that we are worshipping God for all that he is? One of the things that we want to, I think, be careful with, I've been thinking about this over the years, is the balance between God's transcendence, that is his all-surpassing power and might and holiness, and God's immanence, his closeness and intimacy to us. How do we balance those two things in a worship set or a worship songbook? Well the answer might be to, uh, to pick songs which complement both sides but Bob Coughlin uh, whose book Worship Matters absolutely changed my life a few years ago, I love that book, said this, he said the best way to maintain this tension between God's transcendence and immanence is to continually meditate on the gospel. God's transcendent holiness and justice required the sacrifice of the Son of God to be satisfied. At Calvary we stand in awe of perfect righteousness, holy justice and unerring judgment. We can offer no excuses or justification for our sin. We're completely at the mercy of our sovereign creator and king. Yet the gospel assures us that our sins have been completely atoned for. We're no longer God's enemies. We're his adopted children. You have the transcendence of God in the gospel because his wrath burned against humanity until Jesus was able to die and satisfy it. And then you have the imminence of God who has adopted us into his family and we approach him, approach the throne with confidence as his children. We'll worship songs being sung at church that uh, speak of both aspects of God's character there, don't we? The second balance I want to mention is that between declaration and response. Declaration is we say God is like this. Uh, God is X, Y and Z. He is holy. He is good. He is just. And it's a little bit like those Psalms of doxology. It's simply, I'm going to praise God because God is God. And then there are response songs where we say, and in my worship, this is how I'm going to respond to who you are, God. This is what I'm going to do in response. There's a place for both, isn't there, in our song worship. And yet if you look at the two songs, both of which are hopefully quite familiar, but even if not, they're very short, You can have a quick read through. You see a song on the left, Holy Holy, which is a song of declaration that says how great God is, but says very little about how we respond. Maybe it calls people to lift up his name with the sound of singing. but It doesn't necessarily speak to too much of our response. And then you have a song on the right by Reuben Morgan, a song I really love, to be honest, but which doesn't really say anything about who God is and what is causing us to honour God. What is causing us to worship him, to give him praise, to adore him, to give him our hearts, our souls, to live for him alone? Actually, the song is great, but it's all about our response. You could put those songs next to each other to balance one another out in a worship set. But we want to get that balance, don't we, between saying who God is and how we want to respond to him as his uh, dearly loved people. And the final balance I want to mention is the individual verses the collective. I have on several occasions over years found myself deeply uncomfortable singing along to a song which uh, is in the first person singular, um, I this, I that, but which I don't really feel applies to me in any sense. Often this stuff is to do with uh, feelings and the way we feel in that moment. And I don't want to dispute for a second that the person who wrote that song was feeling that way in that moment. Like maybe they were feeling like dancing. Maybe they were feeling God's touch. Maybe they were feeling him close to them. But actually, if we overemphasize those kinds of songs, we end up isolating people who really aren't feeling that way in that sense, which is why it's good to praise uh, from that collective perspective as well as the church. Often there's a lot of crossover there with songs that become intimate or romantic in nature, but actually there's uh, a balance to be struck there between individual responses to who God is and collective responses as His people. I just want to finish by for anybody who, who is leading worship in church or leading a church where there are there is sung worship, just a little checklist to have a think about as we think about um, a little checklist to run through as we have a think about which songs we want to sing on. Sundays and we want a balance don't we and I think using the Psalms as a model for this is really really helpful. Are there songs in our set list which reflect the Psalms? Are there songs which transcend circumstances simply declaring how great God is? Are there songs which praise God for his redemption of us through Jesus Christ? Are there songs which call for God's aid in our hour of need Are there songs in which we can express contrition and repentance and ask God for forgiveness? Because those can easily slip out of fashion. Are there songs which reflect both God's majesty and his intimate fatherhood as well? Are there songs calling us to enact the Great Commission and tell others about Jesus? And finally, are there any songs in the set which are divisive? This is the only negative question in that list. We want all of those wonderful things to be in there, but are there songs in the set which you know actually people find quite divisive? Theology which is unclear. Theology which a lot of people actually disagree with and struggle with. Because my question would simply be this, why pick them over the less problematic songs? The gospel is offensive and yet our message, uh, the, the way we package it shouldn't be. And I think the same can be said of our worship music, Actually, the most offensive thing we should be saying is that people are sinners in need of God, in need of God's redemption. We don't want to be dividing people over uh, the theological lines that we may find in our worship songs. There's a huge bank out there, an ever-growing bank of worship music. Let's pick the ones that don't divide congregations. That kind of brings me to a close at the end of um, that session on worship but i just want to uh, finish with the quote i read at the beginning from the uh, from the um, westminster shorter catechism in 1648 which says what is the chief end of man man's chief highest end is to glorify god and fully to enjoy him forever i don't know exactly which activities you think of when you think of worship in your church community Sun worship the sharing of communion meeting together as community or house groups uh, praying together all of these things can be worshipful Do they encourage us to delight in God and draw near to him? Do they encourage us to glorify him and fully to enjoy him?